Um, so uh, this morning, uh, we're continuing this Holy Spirit series, and actually we're coming to the end of it. Uh, so uh, we decided that we would close the sermon up with a one-two punch. I'm, I'm going to be taking a swing at closing, and then Greg said he's going to cover everything that I missed or got wrong. So <laughs> that, that'll be next week, okay? Um, now, sometimes when I can't sleep at night, uh, I'll head out to the couch and, and turn on the TV and go channel surfing. Uh, and it's amazing that even though I have 200 channels on my TV, I can't find anything to watch. What I can find on TV most every night, uh, on almost every channel, is an endless stream of amazing products and services that will totally change my life. <laughs> I can get slimmer, I could get stronger, I could get more flexible, I could upgrade my mattress, I could get a new pillow, I could even take care of my terrible muffin top over the top of my jeans. Now, when I was growing up, selling something on TV was a new idea, and it got started with a legendary commercial that started it all. The product that every household in America, when I was growing up, was hopeless without was a good set of knives. Now, not just any knife. If you were in a home without the amazing Ginsu knife, life was hardly worth living in that house. And this commercial coined a phrase, and you're going to hear it. I'm going to read you the script for the commercial. Uh, it starts off with the scene of a, uh, of a person like doing a karate chop through a piece of wood. It says, in Japan, the foot can go through a piece of wood, but not a watermelon. What we have for you is the Ginsu 2 knife. It's a chef's knife. It can cut through a branch and still remain sharp enough to slice through a tomato easily. But wait, there's more. <laughs> You're also going to get this amazing meat cleaver. It can chop a log in half and still delicately chop mushrooms. But wait, there's more. It's even designed to be a meat tenderizer. And then they, they said, how's that for a clever cleaver? But wait, they said, there's more. We'll throw in this magic slicing knife. It can cut through a rubber hose and still slice a loaf of bread. How much would you pay for these three incredible knives that would change your life? But wait, there's more. We're also going to give you a pair of paring knives uh, and a fruit and vegetable knife. It can cut through a screw and then also through a hard-boiled egg, and also a pizza. Just wait, there's more. You can get six world-famous Ginsu steak knives that can cut a beer can in half. And they literally cut a beer can in half. You know, for that time when you need half a beer can. <laughs> How much would you pay for these 13 knives with a 50-year guarantee? You're going to be amazed. You can get all this for the low price of... 1999. Okay, but wait, there's a little more about this commercial. Did you know that these knives were first called ever sharp knives and they didn't sell at all? Do you know what the word Ginsu means? Nothing. They totally made it up. Doesn't mean anything. But it sells, right? You know where Ginsu knives are manufactured? In the great state of Ohio. The company that now makes Ginsu knives is owned by Warren Buffett, a billionaire. The Japanese chef that was in the commercial was an exchange student in Ohio. <laughs> now, just for a minute, 
I am going to tiptoe up to the line of cheesy and cliche. At moments, what I'm about to say might make your gag reflex go just a little bit, especially if you grew up in church. I'm going to ask you for just a little bit of grace. Deal? Okay. One person is giving me grace over there. I don't know what happened over here in this section. I want you to imagine that one night you're flipping through the channels and you see Jesus on TV. You look in the bottom right for the icon. What channel is Jesus on? And he's on HSN, the Holy Spirit Network. I told you it was going to be cheesy, right? And he's telling people about the kingdom of God. And he says, listen, I have something for you. Does anyone here ever sin or hurt people? You ever have any regrets or guilt or shame or disappointment? I want to offer you full forgiveness, Jesus said. Your sins, every one of them, completely forgiven, no longer counted against you. You can have a fresh start. How much would you pay for a fresh start, Jesus said? But wait, there's more. I know that all of you are afraid to die. I promise you that if you choose to follow me, I will give you life that will stretch past your death and into the new world that I am creating. I will give you a full life that will last forever. But wait, there's more. Not only can I give you life that goes on eternally, I can actually come to live inside of you and retrain you how to live out your life right here and right now. If you follow my example and let me lead you, you can live a life of love and joy and peace. I will help you, and I'll be patient as you learn it. How much would you pay for this kind of life? Before you get your credit card, Jesus says, there's a little bit more. I can introduce you to other people uh, in a community called the church who are doing the same thing that you are. They will love you and care for you, support you, challenge you and encourage you, and I will use you to do the same thing to them. You won't have to do it alone. But wait, Jesus said, there's more. I've given you supernatural abilities that you can offer to other people so that you together can reach outside of your church into your city to be agents of healing and hope and reconciliation. Do you want to see your city filled with more love, with more life, with more joy, with more peace? I can do that. But there's even more, he says. I promise that one day my kingdom will come to earth completely. There will not be one inch of the entire universe that will not fully be the way that I designed it to be. The way that I want it, that's called the kingdom, and the way that it actually is are one and the same. And not just in the universe, and not just on your planet, and not just in your city, not just in your home, but in your life. It will all be made new. But wait, there's just a little more, he says. There will be nothing, there will be nothing that will come between you and me. We will share a life together, you and I. And we will do things together that I cannot actually explain or show you right now. Are you in? What would you say? Now, I want you to know that in the late winter, early spring, a group of us leaders who oversee the weekend services got together, and we were scratching our heads, thinking, what are we going to be able to talk about for the whole summer? 
And so we had an assignment to bring our ideas, uh, and then we were going to get together and share those ideas and pray about it and see what should we talk about for the whole summer. One by one, every single person in that circle came with the exact same idea. Let's take the summer and let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Why? Why did we choose that? Because we imagined what would happen in our church if the Holy Spirit fully got a hold of every single person that was part of this church, from the leaders to the staff to the volunteers to the servants to you, what would happen in a church if every person was filled and fired up by the power of the Spirit? So today's sermon, as we uh, get ready to close this series, is called The Hope of the Hope of the World. And I'm not going to dig deep into a lot of theological ideas, nor are we going to exegete and pick apart any, uh, uh, any sections of Scripture, uh, no Hebrew or Greek today. I just want permission to speak, if I can, at the end of this series, to speak to you from my heart about this. Does anyone need any hope today? Anyone ever lose hope? Now, sometimes from uh, this stage when I'm sharing a sermon, I share with you guys things from my personal life, from my past, or what's currently happening uh, that can feel risky and vulnerable. Quite a few times I've been fairly vulnerable with you all, and you have taken good care of me in that vulnerability. I am really grateful for that. Today, I want to know if I can ask you to return the favor. I want you to think about this question. Is anyone right now where you sit today... Is there an area of your life that you are lost or you're losing hope? Something in your life, something in your family, in your career's not going the way that you want to, your marriage can't seem to get on track. Anyone ever lost hope or is losing hope today in your life, your marriage, your family, your career, even your church? And I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to ask for a little bit of vulnerability. Would you raise your hand if that's you? Right now, where you are, you've lost or you're losing hope with one of those situations in your life. Yeah. I'm not alone. Well, it's my hope that today would be one step of God's Spirit stirring and restoring uh, your hope. Now, what is hope? Uh, Actually, psychological researchers over the last 50 years have been diagnosing hope. What are the key ingredients of hope in a human life? Uh, And I want to tell you there's two basic components that they found. The first one you probably won't be surprised about. The first one is vision. Vision is a picture of the future that produces passion and commitment in people. So there's an area of your life that you've lost hope. One of the first questions is, do you have a vision for that area? Is there a picture of the future for you? Now, there's a couple words that are synonyms with vision uh, that aren't hope. Uh, one of those is optimism. Sometimes think, people think about optimism as hope. Uh, but optimism isn't quite hope. Optimism is like a, a basic uh, approach to the world where you think that whatever comes next is going to be good. And I'm sure glad that you think that way, because I never think that way, okay? Now, another key ingredient for hope is not just vision, because if it's only a vision and there's no pathway of action, this is the second ingredient of hope, a vision without a pathway to get there, do you know what that's called? That's called a wish. A wish isn't hope. 
A wish is a vision without a pathway to get there. So if you've lost hope in any area of your life, I'm hoping that in some small way today, God gives you fresh vision. Or if you have a vision and you can't seem to figure out what to do, I hope that God gives you some direction about that. And it was exactly this spirit of hope that Paul was getting at and trying to stir up in a church uh, in a town called Ephesus. In the book of Ephesians, let's look at what Paul wrote. Now to him who is able to do, okay, what part of hope is that? This is action. There's a person who is able to take you and able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. What is imagine? Imagine is vision. This God who is able to take you even further than you think that you can go according to his power that is at work within us. How is God's power at work within us? We're going to talk about that in just a second. And to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Where did Paul get this ridiculous idea that God could do even more than we as human beings could ask for or imagine? Where did this idea come from? Now, the earliest disciples that Jesus gathered, he gathered together 12 guys because God had a vision and God had a plan. Now, these first disciples realized that God's vision was a good bit bigger than theirs, and they had grown over the years of their training pretty dependent on Jesus, that like God has a vision, and Jesus is the one who's going to take the action, right? And they had grown accustomed to this, although they had a problem because Jesus started saying stuff like, I'm going to be gone real soon. I don't know how you would feel, but if you had been following this guy This matchless man who had done amazing things, had incredible vision for people's lives, for his community, for human hearts, for the soul. He taught with the kind of vision that you had never heard before. And in any situation, he knew exactly what to do to accomplish that vision. And then that person says, by the way, I know I recruited you onto the team, but I'm going to go. That sounds mysterious, doesn't it? Except for the fact that as Jesus was talking like this, he was using the kind of language that has to do with marriage. For instance, in one spot in the book of John, Jesus tells the disciples that he's got to go because he has to prepare a place for them. He talks about a room, like in my father's home, there are many mansions. I'm going to create a place for you. And that sounds a little bit weird. They already have a place to live. What is Jesus getting at? Now, in a, uh, in a marriage in the ancient Near East, especially within Jewish culture, marriages and engagement worked a little bit differently. So uh, when a man was going to marry a woman, they would get engaged, but immediately after the engagement, instead of them both working together on, the, on planning the ceremony and picking out the flowers and sending out invitations and trying to narrow down a guest list, they would actually split up for almost the whole time of the engagement. And what the husband would do, the man would go and start to build them a home that they were going to live in because they were going to start a life together. Now, this was a bit of a risky affair because if the husband is going, if this man is going to leave, I have to believe that he's going to come back and follow through on this commitment to marry me because I'm going to be waiting. And so it was common practice 
that the man would give the woman a gift, a very expensive gift, basically a deposit. The Bible talks about it as an earnest. It shows how the, the fiancé, the man, feels about the woman. I'm not going to forget you. You might wonder if I have, but I'm not going to. This little uh, deposit, this earnest should be a reminder that I, I'm coming back for you. Not only that, the disciples also, they're, they're frozen in fear. After Jesus is crucified, you find them in an upper room, and previously they had been traveling around Jesus doing amazing things. They had consistently, consistently seen Jesus challenge their vision. Jesus was consistently saying, you think that you've seen something. You haven't seen anything yet. You just wait. There's more. But then Jesus is crucified, and just put yourself in their shoes. Man, I left my career to follow this guy. And now he's gone. And now what are we going to do? The disciples, in a lot of ways, had lost hope. They'd lost both vision and a plan of action. Jesus had both of those things. What can you give to a group of people to help them regain their vision and take action? It's an amazing plan that the Father had. We all know when I ask you who the hope of the world is, you're coming to church long enough. The answer to almost every question in church is Jesus, right? Who's the hope of the world? Jesus is. The only problem is Jesus isn't here. The Gospels are real serious when they say after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples and then he ascended and he is seated at the right hand of the Father in a position of power. And he is a crazy person because he delegated his job carrying out God's vision in the world and taking action to see that happen. He's crazy enough that you know who he delegated that to? You? To me? Not only that, Jesus told his disciples, you think you've seen things happen with me here. You wait. When I go and the Spirit comes, you just wait. There's more. The first time I ever really caught what God's vision was for the local church, a group of my friends had heard about a church just outside Chicago that was doing amazing things. The pastor was an inspiring communicator. They held a conference every year, so me and some friends went to it. And I'll never forget sitting in the first session, and he started to talk, and I was seized by a vision of what a biblically functioning community could be and do to the people that were part of it and to the people that were outside of it. He got up and talked about uh, he, was in, uh, he was in college. He was planning on taking over the family business. His life was going to be filled with leisure and work and profit and sailing until he met a person. He was at a Christian college, and to do his business work, uh, they forced him to take a, a class on the Bible. So he had to sit through a class on the Bible with a French professor. And the French professor, as he would get to the end of class every week, he would start talking about the beauty and the power and the potential of what a local church could be when it was a healthy, biblically functioning community. And I never forget sitting at that conference, listening to that pastor, the first time I heard him utter this phrase, the local church is the hope of the world. 
He talked about this snapshot of this amazing picture that we have in the book of Acts, that when the Spirit came on that group of disciples, they turned their city upside down. It said thousands joined their numbers. It described what their life together was like. They were so devoted to God that they did whatever he told them to do. When he nudged them out on a limb of faith, they said yes instead of no. It says that group of people was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They got together every day. They broke bread. They shared communion. And in that community, it says that there was no poverty, that some people who had extra home or land, when they saw the need that was in that community, they would sell it so that there was no poverty. They tore down racial and socioeconomic walls. They became one. And when he said the local church was the hope of the world, I, I was captivated by that. And the reason I know it was true, as I sat there, uh, is because it happened to me. Uh, I've shared a little bit of my story uh, before, uh, but I was, uh, I was born uh, into a real tough situation. Uh, the state of California got involved in that situation, and I was in foster care about the age of four when a young couple part of a local church, felt like God was telling them to adopt, and those two people provided a source of hope in my life. They rescued me and my brother out of that. It was the local church being the hope of the world. Sometimes I imagine what would have happened if there was no local church. Now, that wasn't the only time I was in hot water. Uh, I was in hot water a lot. Uh, in high school, I got myself in some hot water because I decided I no longer wanted to fall under my parents' authority. I wanted to be in charge of my own life. I ran away from home and was gone for over two months and was in the middle of a legal process of formally breaking the relationship between my parents and I, undoing the miracle of adoption that had happened to me at the age of four. And a youth pastor from a local church came and he talked some sense into me. He actually kicked my butt for most of the time that we were talking and said, what are you doing? And I repented. I turned around. I restored the relationship with my parents and our family was put back together because a youth pastor from a local church brought hope to me in a hopeless situation. Fast forward in my life a few years later, uh, I served in the Marine Corps, and while in the Marine Corps, maybe some of you have, uh, have faced the same challenge. I got pretty deeply entangled with drugs and alcohol, and I made a, I made a wreck of it. I decided that I was going to go on an unauthorized vacation for three months. When I came back from that, they were not real pleased with me. Uh, so unpleased with me that they sent me to military prison for 90 days, and I remember about a week before I got out, I came to the realization that in seven days, I'm going to get out of here and a truck is going to drive me to the edge of our military base and drop me off and I got no one. I have nowhere to go. And I thought about it and I asked myself, when is the last time I can remember having any hope? And it was actually in this town that we live in. I remember that there was a group of people who were Christian people who were here that maybe if I made my way back here, I could find some hope. And so I borrowed enough money for a Greyhound bus ticket, and I sat on that bus for three days from Los Angeles, California to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and my life 
got back on track because of Christian people who were part of a local church. The reason I believe the local church is the hope of the world is because the local church has always been the hope to me. But what do you... Amen. So I've been in some situations where I've lost hope, where I've said, I don't have a vision anymore. Or I might have a vision, but I don't think this pathway of action is going to actually get me there. So what do you do when you lose one of the two components of hope? I only know to tell you what I did, okay? The first thing that I would recommend to you, if you're in a position today where you're looking at your life or your marriage or your career, and you're saying, like, I don't, I've lost vision for it, or I don't think that this plan of action is going to get me to that vision, there's a couple things that usually happen to us. The first thing that I do when I lose hope because of one of these two things, I usually get angry. I know none of you are like me at all. I get frustrated. I just want to start breaking and throwing things, okay? Uh, that's not what you should do, just FYI. The second thing that I want to do, and maybe you'll relate more to this one, when I feel like there's no vision, or I feel like the pathway that I'm on is never, never, never going to get me there, I just want to quit. I just want to throw my hands up and say, forget it then. So what do you do when you're in that position? Here's, the, here's some things that I do. The first thing that I try to do is I try to look backwards. I look backwards in my own life. At other times when I was without hope, and a storyline emerges that I'm not alone in this world, and I'm not the only person with a vision for my life, that there is one who is able to do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine, and that God has met me at every crisis point I've ever been in my life. Why won't he do it again? Why won't he do it again? Okay. Now, there's two different places to look back. So I will look back in my life. The other place that I will look is I will look to the story that we find in the Bible. It's filled with amazing things, you know. A guy named Abraham and Sarah, they had given up hope that they could ever have children. God had given them a vision. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. But it didn't seem like anything was happening. And God did it. A guy named Moses who stuttered so much that he couldn't even talk. God said, I have a vision, Moses. I'm going to free these people, and I'm going to use this group of people to bring freedom to captives for generation after generation after generation, and you're going to be a part of it. And Moses said, how am I going to do that? I can't even talk. And you know what? It happened. A guy named David, young kid, saw that there was this giant that was uh, opposed to God and God's purposes, and he, and, and he just thought, maybe God will be with me enough. Maybe God will protect my life and guide my hand and deliver my people from our enemies, and it happened. It happened in there. Those things happened. They actually did. And those stories should raise our hope, give us vision for the future, and we can see that God can take action in us. Okay, the second thing I would say, you can look backwards. The other thing that you can do is you can lean into community. I meet some people that are cynical and pessimistic, and then I wonder, I wonder how these people got that pessimistic. And then they introduce me to their friends. And I go, oh, 
I understand. This is a pessimism club. Here's one thing that I want to tell you. Hope is contagious. If you don't have hope, get around people that do, right? You can borrow hope from other people. It can catch on. Surround yourself with hopeful people. I'll never forget uh, when I was in my mid-20s, my dad got mad at me because he saw I had a mole on my ear. He said, you need to go check that out. And so when your dad tells you to do something, you just do it. So I went and got it checked out, found out I had cancer. And I thought, oh, that's no big deal. Lots of people get skin cancer. Uh, and they told me what kind I had. It was malignant melanoma. I googled malignant melanoma, 95% death rate within five years. I was like, oh, I'm dying. I was working at a church, and the pastor came in my office, and I told him about it. And I, I had no hope. Vision for my life, I thought, is done. And I don't know what to do. And I'll never forget, he prayed for me, and he... In his prayers, he said, I, I loan some of my faith and hope to Seth. I'm going to give some of that to him. And his prayer has stuck with me. He helped bring hope to me when I was in a hopeful place. One of the reasons why, even though it's super hard here, it can be really hard to find other relationships of connection. One of the reasons why you need to do it is because in times of hopelessness, you will need other people to encourage your hope. It's worth the work to do it. Okay, the third thing that you can do, and this is not a small thing, even though it's going to sound like it, ask God for vision. If you've lost vision for your life, I assure you there is one person who has not given up on you no matter what state you're in. There is one person who still holds on to vision for your life. And because of the work that Jesus did, there's no reason why you can't go to that and say, God, I've lost vision for my life. Will you give me a new one? Will you refresh my vision? Because the truth is, without hope, do you know what happens without hope? People die. They might not just turn over in their chair and their heart stop beating right now, but their life can be a living death, circling around and around. Do you know people like this? I do. Their life isn't going anywhere. There's no vision. So therefore, their action is just looping around and around and around. So ask God for a vision. And then the last thing I'm going to say is, get on the solution side of the problem. This is what hopeful people do. Pessimistic people look at this and say, one, is this vision really worth pursuing? How do we know? The second thing is they look at this plan and go, this is never going to work. And so they sit on the sidelines and make fun of everyone else that's trying to do it. Hopeful people get on the solution side of the equation. Listen, you have a vision for your life. God has a vision for your life. There's another person who has a vision for your life. He is our adversary, and his vision for your life is destruction. And he's going to work all along this pathway at every point he possibly can to lead towards his vision. It's not easy to have hope. It's a fight. When you hit a barrier, and you will, to say, okay, God, this pathway is not working anymore. I'm not going to quit or get mad. I'm going to try a new pathway. I'm going to stay on the solution side of the equation with enough people who live on the problem side, right? Okay, um, as I get ready to close, sometimes I'll come into this room 
uh, and take some time to pray. Oftentimes in the morning before anybody's here, I'll leave the lights off. Sometimes I knock my shins into the chairs because I can't see them, but I like it dark in here, so I'll, I'll walk around and pray. And sometimes I think about um, what this place used to be. Uh, you know, you're sitting in a, uh, in a place that used to be devoted to home improvement. You could find lumber and nuts and bolts. I sometimes wonder, what was right here? Was this like the drywall paint section, or what was this? It's kind of ironic to me, and I think God has a sense of humor, that this building went from a home improvement store, right, to like a soul improvement place, a place that helps people live life. Oh, oh. All right. And sometimes I think, like, aren't you glad that God thought this up? Like, what if that hadn't happened? What if, for instance, this place got turned into a big donut shop? Okay? Some of you are like, that sounds really good right now. <laughs> or a cell phone store, or who knows what else. Imagine what would happen. Think of all the lives that have been transformed here going on 24 years. Yeah. God has a vision for this place. Uh, and this little church called Wooden Hills that had been traveling around from school to school, um, led by an amazing teacher and leader in Greg. Aren't you glad God thought up Greg Boyd? Right? Like a, like a genius drummer, theologian who can take any section of Scripture and help you look at it in a way that you never have looked at it before. Sometimes totally confusing you, but eventually helping you see because his brain is moving 100 miles faster than yours. Aren't you glad God created a Greg Boyd? Yes. Aren't you glad that God only created one Greg Boyd, right? Yes. When that group of people was traveling around and needed to find a home, God brought them and some of you here. God said, I, I got a vision for what I want to do. A biblically functioning community at 1740 Van Dyke to be hope because this group is part of my hope for the whole world. And you know what had to happen? God didn't just have a vision. Some people had to say yes and step up. And a number of you took money that could have gone to lots of other things, vacations and Christmas and gifts and more stuff, and said, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice financially so that I can put a roof in here and carpet and drywall. I believe in this vision, so I'm going to say yes. And over the last um, 15 years in this building, think of all the things that have happened. Because a biblically functioning community got planted here. And I can only imagine, like, why did we take this whole summer to talk about the Holy Spirit? Why do we get led that way? I can only imagine that part of it is because God wants in a fresh new way for there to be a group of people who hear His voice. The Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, John. Hey, Sarah. I have a vision for something new that I want to do here at Woodland Hills, your church. It is the hope of the world, you know. And I have a critical role for you to play. Will you say yes? 
Will you say yes and bring it as opposed to saying yes and then not bringing it? Will you say yes? I have something for you to do. I can only imagine that part of the reason why we're spending this summer in the Spirit is because God, because God wants to remind each one of us that are here um, that we should just wait because God is the God who always has more for you and for me, vision and action. Would you stand? Let me close in a prayer. Jesus, the local church is the hope of the world because you are. And in some strange miracle, your, your vision is that we could play a part in that. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, not because we're good enough. Because you're generous and gracious. Because you are a what-if God who always is saying, you just wait, there is more. To you, God, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, we ask you for great things. And we as a church imagine the things that you will do and we stand back in awe at the fact that you want to use us as your means of that. Lord, for those that are here that have lost some hope, God, you see into our lives, all, every one of us. You know our minds and you know our hearts. I pray that you would spark hope. Help people look backwards and to see the ways that you've moved and help us lean into each other, into community, to gain hope. We ask for fresh vision as a church. Uh, and I speak for me and I hope I speak on behalf of lots of people here and listening by podcast. When you nudge us and say, I have a critical role to play, God, I want to say yes. Give us the courage. Give me the courage. In your name we pray. Amen. Prayer teams are going to be up front. If there's anything that we can pray for you about, have a great week.